Our message today comes to us from Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 5. And it reads like this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is the blessed word of our Lord. Ericross, I've introduced the last two weeks, but I want to, for those of you who may be here today who haven't been here before, it is a Latin word which means tomorrow I will come. And when you take the letters of the word Ericross, they cover the names in Isaiah given regarding Jesus and who he is, these uh, names that Isaiah gave. And so this morning we're in the O, Oriens, O-R-I-E-N-S. Sometimes simply translated as light. Uh, Other times, day spring, you may have heard uh, or seen the phrase. And that is the descriptor of the Messiah that we see today. There is something about light and darkness that uh, uh, correlates with fear and joy. Fear is a very real problem in our world at large today, and it is a very real problem in some of your lives today. Uh, Fear is natural, and there is some fear that is healthy and can save or protect your life. But uh, that's not the fear that we're talking about today. Talking today about fear that can grip you. Fear that can uh, cause you to uh, lose sight of reality, to see the problem bigger than it really is. That kind of fear is crippling. It can evidence itself with anxiety. Uh, it can, uh, its accomplice is worry. Worry tends to run alongside that kind of fear. Uh, panic attacks, anxiety. Um, sometimes it can lead to a lengthened time of depression if it isn't dealt with. Fear is real. I was looking on uh, a line at some resources and discovered this list of top 10 fears, and we'll kind of count them down. Uh, I'm not sure how it was arrived at. I think it would be difficult to do any kind of definitive research on uh, this, but here is the list. Number 10 is the fear of losing your freedom. Uh, Number nine, the fear of the unknown. Eight, the fear of pain, physical, emotional, the fear of pain. Uh, Seven, the fear of disappointment. Six, misery, the fear of living in prolonged discomfort, misery. 
Uh, Number five, many singles uh, feel and experience this, the fear of loneliness, the fear of being alone. Number four, many teenagers deal with the fear of ridicule, of not measuring up, of others uh, uh, saying things or doing things to uh, tear them down. Number three, the fear of rejection. Relationships struggle with this. Number two, the fear of death, which would lead us to the question, what fear could trump that one? Number one on this list is the fear of failure. The fear of coming to the end of your life and realizing that what you lived for maybe wasn't worth it, or the fear of tackling a project or a new job that you may not succeed at. The fear of not raising your children as they should be reared and and taking that responsibility on yourself. Fear can be a uh, gripping thing. It is into this fear that Isaiah speaks. You see, Assyria is a menacing enemy that is coming to the north and they are going to devastate Israel. (coughs) The Assyrians didn't care. They were men of war who had no concern for humanity and and they didn't care what they did nor how they did it. And chapter 8 is all about the Assyrian, the coming Assyrian invasion. Uh, The people are living in perpetual fear. As much of the world lives in today for fear of terror. Um, I, I would say that ISIS doesn't have much on the Assyrians and their tactics. They were horrific warriors. And so it is that Isaiah is speaking into this. You must remember that the reason the fear is coming, though, is because of Ahaz, who is king of Judah to the south, because of his disobedience. He refused to listen to God and God's will and God's plan, and he invited Assyria to come in and take care of Israel. And Assyria is marching in, and this is going to be devastating. What we discover then is that Isaiah's message is like a beacon in the darkness. It's hope when hope is lost. It's fear dispelled. Isaiah's message is rather powerful. As a matter of fact, he speaks in what we call the prophetic present. He speaks about future things in the present tense as if they have already occurred. He so believes them, he speaks as if it has already happened. And what does he say? Three uh, distinctives or characteristics of this message. Number one is that light dispels darkness. Light dispels darkness. Verse 20 of chapter 8. Let me back up to verse 19 of chapter 8. Reveals the problem. Ahaz, refusing to listen to God, decides to, to call on the palm readers, if you will. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? 
Why is it that you read your horoscope instead of listening to God, uh, Isaiah said? Why is it that your palm matters more than the God who holds you in the palm of his hands? Why is it that you would go to a dead uh, being to find out what to do as one who is alive? That's what he's saying. Verse 20, it's an incomplete sentence. It's a fascinating construction. He says, to the teaching and to the testimony, exclamation point. Meaning, go back to the law. Go to God's word. And how does he follow that? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. The title of this sermon is Desperate for Dawn. It is because they have no dawn, meaning they're living in and groping through darkness. There is no dawn. It is a dark existence in Israel. Yes, it is day and night, but it is spiritual darkness that prevails. They have no dawn. Isaiah says, there is one coming, and when he comes, light will dispel the darkness. Where will this happen? That's important. In the land of Naphtali, it's uh, uh, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. This was the land in the northern region, and this was despised by Israelites proper. Um, the reason so is that Assyria or Assyria was there, Mesopotamia is to the north. You had all of these other peoples, and they would intermingle with the Israelites, and the worship got uh, messed up. The, uh, the, the people there were despised, so much so that I think it was Nathaniel when somebody said, hey, there's a guy named Jesus, and where is he from? He's from Nazareth. And uh, in John 1:46, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, can something good come out of those parts? This was the despised region, and into that region comes the light shining brightly. Notice this. Look at uh, verse, uh, or, or look with me to Matthew 4 12 through 17. Now, when he heard, this is Jesus, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Note, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has what? Dawned. What did Isaiah say in Isaiah 8, chapter 20? They have no what? Dawn. Now they do. The people who had no dawn, on them the light has dawned. And from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you know what I've found through the years in my ministry is that people who live and walk in perpetual darkness end up liking it. The addiction becomes home base for them. 
that they end up uh, finding comfort in things that uh, really afflict them. It, it is strange how that happens, isn't it? Uh, they enjoy darkness. Physiological, this is the case too. If you are in dark and somebody turns the light on, what is your immediate reaction? Your eyes close. Why? Your pupils are dilated. You've been in the dark. Your eyes are trying to see. And when the light comes on, your eyes close. Uh, my mom was um, just, just really basic in how she parented us. She, she would say to us, when we went for our shots, she would say, now, you know it's going to hurt. There's no need to cry. And we didn't. There were three of us. I still remember we would go to get our shots, and Mama told us, you know it's going to hurt. There's no need to cry. It's not going to help. So we didn't. She didn't bribe us. She didn't say, if you don't cry, we'll go to McDonald's. There was none of that. And so nurses would come out and watch, and we would be lined up there. And they would come through, you know, and shoot us and give us our shots, and we just sat there stoic. We never cried. Why? Mom said it was going to hurt anyway. Crying wouldn't help. This is how she woke us up in the morning. A very loving mom, but this is how she woke us up in the morning. She would come to our bedrooms, and she would flip on the switch. The bright light. It would hit your eyes. And she would say, in a very calm voice, I've never heard her raise her voice in my life, it's time to get up. She never came back. We got up. It's amazing. She never came back to get us in the kitchen like every single morning of my life. From the time I can remember, sitting at all three of our places was a Cool Whip bowl full of oatmeal and biscuits. That's what we had every day. Not five cereals to choose from. It was the Quaker box. Only, only sugar and hot water. No of this, you know, little packets with all the garbage in it. Just oatmeal. I got up, would not go wash my hands or my face. Why? I had eaten so much oatmeal that I determined if I could eat it in my sleep, I wouldn't remember it. Number one. Number two, my brother, my older brother sat right beside me and he did the grossest thing on the planet. He would take those biscuits, fresh, hot biscuits, we call them cat heads. All right, so he'd take those biscuits, pop them open, sop them in the oatmeal. Wait until they got soppy and eat them. That's sick. And I would sit there and go, I could hear the sound. I, I lie you not, I can't eat oatmeal to this day. Like, I will throw up. If it's put in for, I just can't eat it. It's so good for you. It's so healthy. And the only way I eat it is in Wendy's chocolate oatmeal cookies. That's the only way. <laughs> that's the only way I ever eat oatmeal. I just can't. And so, so that's what mom would do. But do you know our immediate reaction to the light would be what? Close your eyes. I mean, it's coming every morning. The switch is going on. The light is going to shine in your face. You close your eyes. Do you know some of you have already started doing it this morning? You walked in here in the dark of your addiction, of your habit, of your sin, and already the light has been switched on. And your initial reaction is, no, no, I don't want to hear what you've got to say to me. Why? You like 
what you're doing. Are you ready for this? Every time we sin, it's because we want to. Every time. If you're a believer, every time you sin, there's no excuse for the devil made you do it. Wow. The light shines in our immediate reaction to that is no. No. On them, the light has shined. Notice this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light is shone. What does that mean? Please hear me. It means that there's not a little spark of goodness in you that God is trying to fan into a burning light. It means if the light doesn't come from outside, you're in darkness. That's what it means. And so, light dispels darkness. Secondly, joy replaces fear. How do we see that? You have multiplied, verse 3, the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Now, that's interesting, and here's why. Because many of us, if you're younger, I think you probably assume that food is grown in cans, right? You, you, you're not part of the growing, the, the, the sowing and the growing process, but here, uh, that's what they knew. And if the crops didn't come up, they, they starved. They understood that it had to rain and crops had to grow and they had to eat then those crops that grew. Most kids these days don't get that, do they? They, they think it just magically shows up on store shelves. It never occurs to them that maybe something happened before the shelf or before the table or the cabinet. And so uh, when in an agrarian culture the crops came up, oh, it's time to party, right? It's time to celebrate. You get to eat for the next year. Here's what I find interesting. I want you to hang with me. Ezekiel was a prophet to the exiles. All right, so this means Israel had fallen to the north, which happened shortly after Isaiah wrote. About 130 years later, Judah fell to the south to King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was so violent that when he came in, he took the last king of Judah, he lined all his sons up in front of them, in front of him, he executed all of his sons and gouged his eyes out. So that the last thing the king of Judah would see were his sons being executed. That was Neb. You would think after all of that, the people who are left in Israel, the temple that had been ransacked, that they would go into that temple and and they would repent, right? They would repent. They didn't. Here's what they did. They went into the temple And Ezekiel, who's over with the exiles in Babylon, God lifts him up and allows him to see into the temple. And the women are in the temple and they're weeping for the god Tammuz. Who is Tammuz? Tammuz was the god of fertility and agriculture. It was believed that when uh, the things started to die, 
at the end of planting season that Tammuz died and went to the underworld and that in the springtime, the way to get things to grow again was to weep and the tears of the women would go into the land, into the ground and Tammuz would essentially rise from the dead. And in the very temple where they ought to be worshiping God, they're, they're weeping for this God Tammuz. Isn't that interesting? And what happened in Ezekiel's vision is that the glory of God that was in the temple was in the Holy of Holies, moved to the outer uh, court, and no, no change, and then to the Mount of Olives, and no change, and completely removed himself from his people. So what happens here? When the Messiah comes, light dispels darkness, joy replaces fear. How? Like at harvest time. The very thing they were weeping for in the temple, this is now what they're rejoicing. But it's not because of some ridiculous notion that a God dying and raising from the dead is going to bring crops. It is from this unbelievable gift of God giving his son, Jesus Christ, who would die. And his death would bring life. His death would bring life. And his resurrection would bring hope. God is saying, hey, you can weep for Tammuz all day long, but I will weep for you. I will give my only son for you to give you life, to give you hope, to give you peace, to give you joy. There is no amount of tears that you can shed that can bring life to you. It's the tears I will shed over the death of my son that's ultimately going to bring life to you. And so Jesus died. Jesus resurrected. That is how we have hope today. And guess what? There's absolutely nothing you can do to make that happen. Nothing. You can't make that happen. God made it happen through Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes, they will rejoice as they do at harvest. And secondly, they'll rejoice as they do when they've won a war. That's what he says. It's like when you have spoils and victory. And he goes on to say, just like it was with Midian. Well, who's Midian? Well, Midian rhymes with Gideon. And Gideon was a judge that God called out of obscurity in that day. You see, Gideon was hiding out because his people were in danger. This is early in Israel's history. His people were in danger. Gideon is hiding out. He's a little man. He's a, a short man, and he's a little among his tribes. He described himself as the least among the least. He had some self-image issues. And he's threshing grain in the secret, trying to uh, stay away from the Midianites who are trying to steal all of the grain of the people. And God shows up and says, Gideon, hey, I'd like for you to lead, uh, you know, the charge and take care of my people. And Gideon is like, who, me? <laughs> God, don't you know who I am? Yeah, God says. Um, well, Gideon doesn't buy it, all right? So he's like, let me put out a little fleece here, God. And if you'll, you know, make it wet in the morning, I'm good. I'm good to go. And God did that. And Gideon did another test. And God, you know, came through every time. He's good like that. And so God did. And Gideon said, okay, I'm in. And so Gideon goes and does what any good leader does. You rally the troops. He brings them in and 32,000 men show up. God pulls them to, a side, to the side, sidebar, Gideon. Yes, God. Um, 
you got too many men. Really? Midianites? Israelites? Uh, We're a bunch of misfits. They have weapons. Too many of us? Yeah. God says, make a little announcement. Gideon goes back out. There they stand. He thinks he has a mighty army. God knows better. And, and, and God says, make this announcement. All right? So all these men are there, got their man card in their pocket. And they're all standing there. And Gideon looks at them and says, all right. God has said for me to say to you, everybody who's afraid, you can leave. <laughs> 22,000 said, I'm out of here. Here's my man card. I'm wussing out. Hope you guys have a good battle. And they leave. 10,000. Well, at least you've got 10,000. And so he says, okay, God, we're ready now. Uh, uh, not yet. No, I don't think you are. Really? No, no. Uh, what do you, you still have too many. What? Midianites, Israelites. Ready for war, not ready for anything. Uh, Gideon, uh, have them drink water from a stream, and uh, if if they lap it like a dog, send them on. But if they bring it up like this, we're good. Well, okay. I mean, that's quite an interview to fight a war. And so they go, oh my, 300 of them drank like this. He sent the rest away. So now it's Gideon and 300 men and all the Midianites. And Gideon was understandably nervous. He had a sleepless night. He sent some spies down into the Midianite camp. He heard them talking about their fear of the Israelites, which bolstered him a little bit. And God said, here's my war strategy. This is what we're going to do. You're going to need three things to fight this war. Trumpets. All right. Trumpets. Torches. Oh, that makes us a moving target. Yay. All right. So, so torches, trumpets, and jars. All right. So, I, honestly, maybe my thinking is just so messed up. But I think if this were to happen today, you know what I'm thinking of? Like Yankee candles, mason jars, and a kazoo. All right, we can take them. 300 of us with Yankee candles, mason jars, and a kazoo. And we're going to go after uh, this mighty army of Midian. And so God says, divide them into three camps. And Midian, when you say, for the Lord, uh, when you say that, smash those jars, blow those kazoos, and light the Yankee candles. And sure enough, They split into three groups. They smash those jars after Gideon yells. They light those torches and they blow the trumpets. And when they do, all of a sudden, the Midianites hear from this. It's stereo sound, you see. It hears from here. It goes to here. It goes to there. They think it is a massive army. And when they do, they turn on one another. They totally kill each other. And God routes the enemy before them. That's how it's going to be when the Messiah shows up. What does that mean? Please hear me. It most likely means that the fear that is crippling you today, God has. 
And he doesn't need your military prowess to take care of it. Your numbers don't impress him. Your intellectual capacity to manage your problem doesn't draw him in. Uh, he, he, he could deal with whatever is dealing with you right now, with a kazoo, a Yankee candle, and a mason jar, if he wanted to. That's the point. Wow. How does this look? You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Joy replaces fear. And finally, peace displaces war. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult. That's so poetic. Many scholars believe this whole section was a hymn. Obviously, Handel thought that when he turned it into the Messiah. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The only reason that you would burn the very uh, garb of the soldiers, their uniform, is because, as the old spiritual says, they ain't going to study war no more. There will be peace. I would say to you that uh, across this world, we will see this when Christ returns as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when he reigns over this universe. But I would also say that you can have peace in the middle of your personal circumstance right now. Amen? After the early service, someone came up to me and said, my marriage is so close to being over. I so needed to hear that today. Can you have peace when she's saying, I want out? Yes. Yes. Can you have peace when grief rolls in like the ocean's tides? Yes. Yes. Can you have peace when the finances are adding up? Yes. Can you have peace when your children are not obeying, are not walking in the ways of God? Yeah. This peace is not just for the grand scheme, it's personal. Luke 2.14, the angels say glory. By the way, I think that that's when the glory that departed from the temple returned right here. Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
you can have peace in the middle of your storm. How is all of this going to happen? It's verse 6 that we covered last week. For unto us a son is born, uh, a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and his name will be called Emmanuel. God with us. He will be light. Orion's light. It was several years ago, I, uh, at the time, worked with all of our ages here. Our church was quite young. And so I would go visit all of our college students and um, just check in on them. Trent was, was very young, and so this would have been, uh, he'll be 13 in a few weeks, so this would have been 12 and a half years ago. I trekked over to Cullowee to see Josh Piercy, who was a student there. I took Josh to eat. I was in, uh, I think, the little, uh, the little red truck, and I took Josh to eat. And when I did, uh, we had eaten, and I left, and it began to rain. And it was a pounding rain, one that you could hardly see in front of you. It was dark, and I was leaving Cullowee when all of a sudden my windshield wipers quit. And I literally could not see at all. There were no street lights. It was that dark road. And I could see barely to my right to get off and into a neighborhood. But I had no clue what kind of neighborhood I was in. Trent was with me. I had taken him with me on this little trek. He was about six months old and he was over in his seat. I tried to call back to Josh. He didn't answer. I couldn't reach anyone at home. My phone signal wasn't good because of the storm anyway and because of where we were located. And I remember, I don't know if you've ever felt this, but I remember fear just beginning to wash kind of from the crown of my head down to my feet. And I looked over and the rain was pounding and it was pitch black dark outside. And Trent was asleep. And I thought, what are you thinking? You're asleep? He was sound asleep. Why? Why could he sleep? Here's why. He was in the truck with his daddy. That's all he needed. That was it. In his mind, in his little six-month-old mind, if I'm in a driving rainstorm with no windshield wipers in a neighborhood that is dark and we don't know and the danger that lurks, of course, he didn't know all that. As long as I'm with my daddy, I'm good. I want to say something to you this morning. For now, 15 years, God has privileged me to be your pastor. And over those 15 years, I have seen you in those driving rainstorms. I've watched you as you have gotten fired from jobs unfairly. I've watched you as you have grieved. I have watched you as you have prayed and begged God to turn your wayward son or daughter around. I cannot promise you 
that you won't sit there. I cannot promise you that it won't rain and that the wipers won't quit, but I promise you this, Jesus will never leave you. He won't. I promise you that when you seek him, you'll find him. I promise you that when the diagnosis is dire, that he knew about it before the diagnosis came and he was preparing you for that moment that he did things in your life that you had no clue were preparing you for that very moment of difficulty in your life. There is a God who has promised never to leave you, never to forsake you through whatever it is you may experience. Amen, church? He will be with you. He will be there. Say, Jerry, what do I do? What do you do when fear creeps in or it floods in, however it gets in? What do you do? There's no formula. I shared this two weeks ago. I have no idea, uh, honestly, how many people have, uh, have said something back to me about this, but it was praying with open hands. You take whatever it is or whoever it is or whatever the situation is and put it in your hands and say, God, I can't. And I know you can. So as our team comes, we're going we're gonna to sing the song that affirms this. But you say, God, I can't. And God, I come and I bow before you and I recognize that your light must, must, must blast the darkness that is surrounding me right now. God, only you can. I can. And I promise you that that God, through Christ and through the Spirit, is eagerly waiting for you to say, God, I can't. I would also say this. If you're here this morning and you walked in here lost and this light has been blinding to you and you realize your sin, I'm going to be over here. Alan Michael is going to be over here. We would love more than anything for you to come to us and say today, I'm going out of the darkness into light. I need Christ as my Savior. Secondly, if you're in here this morning and you're hurting and you need prayer, sometimes it helps for somebody else just to come around you and pray. That's why we're up here as well. Let's stand. Let's sing this a song, this song as a confession to the Lord this morning. Amen.